welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we welcome back Michael Saylor. Michael has joined us for two episodes, number one to cover Bitcoin versus real estate, and the second comparing Bitcoin to equities. Today we're going to compare Bitcoin to sovereign debt, specifically with regard to specific investors and how they are going to treat Bitcoin versus sovereign debt. Michael, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Let's start with the fair value accounting breakthrough about Bitcoin and the ability for companies to treat Bitcoin as a cash metric. So can you get into that and explain it to the viewer? Sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, the accounting treatment for Bitcoin up until probably 2024 is as indefinite and tangible. And so if you're a gap accounting company in the Western world, generally what that means is that if you were to acquire um, Bitcoin on your balance sheet, then uh, when it trades down, you'll take the losses. And when it trades up, you will not recognize the gains. And so it's a one-way ratchet function on a balance sheet you will mark it down to the lowest price it ever traded at in the history of your ownership of it. And then you will never be able to recognize the current price that it, that it is valued at. So, so it creates a degree of opacity and confusion in the balance sheet. And then uh, that confusion in the balance sheet also washes through to be confusion in the P&L because if you actually have a if you have a example where bitcoin trades down you take the loss and it becomes an operating loss so you could actually buy bitcoin have it trade down 50 million dollars and it would offset 50 million dollars of operating income and so the pnl of the business that generated 50 million dollars of operating income would look like it generated 0 dollars so you're, uh, you're not breaking it out as an investment gain and an investment loss. You're actually combining uh, your losses from the investment in Bitcoin with your losses from the operation of the business. And that means that if you're an objective observer, you can't tell whether the operating business made or lost money. And you can't tell whether the investment made or lost money you're generally going to be biased toward presuming that the business lost a lot more money than it did because when the business makes investment gains, it won't show them. And when it makes losses, it will show them. So the ownership of Bitcoin on the balance sheet under indefinite and tangible treatment will always be a drain to the balance sheet, a liability to the balance sheet optically. Uh, and it will also be a liability to the P&L. Um, this is the kind of treatment you would give to a very scary, exotic asset that you didn't want people to acquire. <laughs> and uh, so generally, it's the bucket you put in anything that's new or different, misunderstood, or, uh, or um, you just don't have time to deal with. Uh, between the years 2020 and 2023, 20, uh, 
it became increasingly clear to the accounting establishment that there are a lot of mainstream companies that wanted to acquire and hold Bitcoin. So MicroStrategy was uh, the first really big uh, public acquirer of Bitcoin, but but uh, Block acquired Bitcoin, and then all the Bitcoin miners acquired Bitcoin, and then Tesla acquired Bitcoin, and this became a public issue. It was taken up uh, with a lot of community support by FASB. After a very thoughtful process, they came to the conclusion unanimously that they should give Bitcoin fair value accounting treatment rather than indefinite and tangible accounting treatment. Uh, the latest, uh, the latest uh, communication on that indicated that they'll make this mandatory for all public uh, reporting companies uh, as of December 15th of next year. So as we go into fiscal years that end after December 15th of 2024, this will be common practice. And between the beginning of 2024 and the end, it'll it'll be optional, I think, for companies to decide whether they wish to adopt it. And the significance of fair value accounting is that you account for Bitcoin similar to the way you would account for a, a portfolio of securities on your balance sheet. It kind of works like this. If, um, if I buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin and it trades down 50%, then in that period, at the end of the period, you'll value it at what, a, at, in this case, it would be valued at 500 million. You'd be holding 500 million on your balance sheet and you would have a $500 million investment loss. But you would report the investment loss separately from the operating gain or operating loss of the core business. So now you would see uh, there's an investment with an investment loss and the fair value at the end of the reporting period is this much, 500 million. Now, if you go a year further and you regain that loss and you double it, you would now be showing $1.5 billion worth of investment gains. And you would have $2 billion on your balance sheet. And the operating losses or gains of the core business would, would, would continue uh, you know, unobstructed or, or unmodified. So now you have two parts of the business. You have the balance sheet part of the business where you have investment losses and investment gains. And you have the P&L or the operating side of the business where you have investment, where you have operating losses and operating gains. Um, this is uh, really critical because if you have a healthy business, let's say Facebook or Apple, and you have a lot of cash flow, you're never going to want to present the business as though it had no cash flow or, or it had no operating profit and it was losing money by virtue of owning uh, a volatile treasury asset. So the volatility of Bitcoin combined with indefinite and intangible treatment makes the holding of it toxic to a conventional company. Uh, a conventional CEO, a conventional CFO would never want to hold anything more than a trace amount. This is one of the reasons why uh, many people considered it and didn't take it on their balance sheet and why other companies that hold it uh, don't want to hold more than a small amount of 5% or 1% or 2 or 3% of their balance sheet. So the transition to fair value accounting means that 
now uh, they don't have to worry that the volatility of the asset will interfere with the transparency of their operating business. And that's a big plus. And the second plus, of course, is if I told you you could invest money in something, but you could never recognize the gains from the investment, that would be uh, a big uh, letdown, I guess, a big negative. If I'm going to invest a billion dollars and make $10 billion, but no one knows, then, uh, then I guess I would rather invest a billion in something that I could get compensated for or recognized for, rewarded for. So with fair value accounting, not only do you not interfere with the transparency of the operating business, but you also are able to recognize the investment gains over time, both in your P&L. You could show if you're holding a billion dollars of Bitcoin and it trades up 20% a year, you'll be showing $200 million a year of investment gains, right? And so that's, that's significant. That actually will impact your EPS, right? So, so it's going to be accretive to your earnings per share and it's going to be accretive to your earnings in general. So that's a plus. It's also going to be accretive to your balance sheet. Now you'll be actually, you'll show that your balance sheet grew by $200 million in that period. So that's a big plus. And then um, there are some intangibles here. Well, not intangibles. There are, there are secondary benefits. Um, if you have fair value accounting, and uh, this year you have $10 billion of Bitcoin, but last year you had $5 billion, then when an, an objective observer or an investor looks at your P&Ls and your balance sheets over three years, they'll see you went from $2 billion to $5 billion to $10 billion. And that makes sense. That's logical, right? That tells a story in a matter of seconds. But under indefinite intangible treatment, the balance sheet would show two billion going to one billion going to eight hundred million <laughs> over the three years. So the story is actually the opposite of what happened. It looks like you have a lot less money. It looks like it's not the strategy is failing, not working. And you can't compare previous periods to current period. So it's impossible to compare the strength of one balance sheet of a company over time uh, with uh, indefinite and tangible. But with fair value, you can. And then, of course, um, if you're comparing two companies that both hold Bitcoin, one company has $10 billion of Bitcoin, the other company has $5 billion of Bitcoin, under indefinite and tangible, it could look like the company with less Bitcoin has more and the company with more Bitcoin has less. See, the company that has the 10 billion could look like it has 1 billion and the company that has the 5 billion could look like it has 2 billion. And so you can't compare one security to another security or one investment opportunity to another investment idea because you don't have transparency to the fair value uh, at the end of the period in question. So you can see as an investor... Under fair value accounting, you can uh, get a snapshot of performance across various investment ideas and performance across time periods and the real-time strength of the P&L and the performance of uh, various operating businesses versus each other. And you can figure it out in a matter of seconds. And under indefinite intangible accounting treatment, you would take hours and hours to extract the same insight. So something would be a hundred times or a thousand times harder. And of course, 
if it's a thousand times harder for me to understand what you're saying, I would just tend to tune out, right? I mean, professional investors have to, they have to compare 10,000 different ideas every minute of the day. They don't have time to spend a week comparing one idea to the other 10,000 ideas, right? It's the odd, the odd man out or the oddball. So you would just ignore it. So the significance of fair value accounting coming to Bitcoin is it, uh, it makes the asset non-toxic for an operating company to hold or a company that uses gap accounting. It also um, makes it transparent, uh, the performance of Bitcoin-backed companies to be transparent. And so that's a, a positive feedback loop, right? When Bitcoin companies are performing well, it'll be obvious to Wall Street and they'll want to finance more of them, right? So that's a secondary benefit. And the third is um, because Bitcoin is a commodity, it's a financial commodity, um, it can be held on the balance sheet of an operating company where um, right now only treasury assets or, or, or sovereign debt type assets can be held on that balance sheet uh, as, a, as a treasury uh, strategy. So before, before Bitcoin, there really wasn't any good fungible commodity that I might hold on the balance sheet. My choice was uh, securities or property, but I can't really hold property on my balance sheet if I'm a corporation because it's not liquid. I can't buy $247 million worth of property a week and then liquidate $121 million in an hour, right? It's, it's, I, it takes me six months to buy a building and it takes me three months or a year to sell the building. So that doesn't really work so well as a treasury asset. And then uh, packages of securities are fungible and they're liquid, but securities are discriminated against by the regulators. And, and if an operating company holds more than 40% of its liquid assets and securities, it's deemed as an SEC 40 reporting company or a financial company. And once it gets, uh, it gets deemed or designated as an SEC 40 company, the operating executives lose the rights to do many things that operating companies need to do, like issue debt, take on leverage, issue options, uh, sell volatility, et cetera. And so that, uh, that is really not, it's not a possible regime for an operating company like Google or Apple to operate in. They have to, they have to stay an operating company. They can't be an SEC 40 company. An example of an SEC 40 company we're all familiar with is like uh, an ETF. But you can imagine if you picked up the paper and you read that the that the Bitcoin ETF issuer had just issued stock options to all the employees and then just issued a junk bond and borrowed $10 billion, you would say, what? <laughs> huh? What? Like, uh, you don't expect your mutual fund operator or your ETF operator to do that sort of stuff, right? That's just inappropriate. And you can imagine why that's inappropriate. So there are a lot of protections for investors in SEC 40 companies. And the result is um, they're good for what they do, which is they're there to acquire, uh, to serve as trustees and to acquire a set of assets for investors and, 
and be uh, trustworthy custodians. Uh, but they're not very good at, uh, you know, you don't, you would never read your gold ETF is just bought uh, a chain of restaurants <laughs> or a chain of trucking companies, right? They don't do acquisitions. They don't, you know, they don't do volatility. They don't do leverage. That's not what you want from your SEC 40 company. You want them to be very, very simple vehicles. Um, and, uh, and so for that reason, uh, Microsoft and Facebook and Apple, they're, they're not simple. They're here to do more complicated things, and they don't want to be deemed as an SEC 40 uh, reporting entity, which means that um, as a practical matter, when they acquire uh, cash flows, they're either going to buy currency or they're going to buy sovereign debt with it. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL. Why do we love River? River is a Bitcoin-only exchange. They offer Lightning Network deposits and withdrawals. And most importantly, guys, they do not outsource custody of their Bitcoin and customers' Bitcoin to a third-party custodian. River has its own multi-sig custody solution. That means that it is not using some other company to store Bitcoin that is purchased within their platform. So make sure you go check them out, river.com slash TBL, and learn about River today. So when we think about the benefits from buying Bitcoin versus sovereign debt for operating companies, where can we start? Obviously, there are we can start with the risks of sovereign debt, but what else can we do uh, to compare Bitcoin to sovereign debt with regard to operating companies and uh, the use for that working capital, as uh, you suggest, holding on to that cash is actually dilutive to shareholders. So, you know, yeah, you're right to focus on operating companies, right? There are a lot of people that have to decide whether to invest in Bitcoin or invest in sovereign debt, right? You've got endowments, you've got retail investors, You've got nation states, you've got institutional investors, and you've got operating companies. So we'll leave aside those other investors. We'll focus on operating companies. Operating companies, they have a couple of challenges. One is they, um, they have this 40% um, cap from the regulators. They're, they're not allowed to buy a bunch of liquid securities. So they are allowed to acquire a lot of property. It's okay for, if you've got a billion dollars in, in working capital, you can buy natural gas with it or oil or timber, lumber, soybeans. You can buy um, land, buildings. You can buy Bitcoin or you can buy sovereign debt. Now, if you think about your treasury strategy, um, the treasury strategy of an operating company is we want something which is liquid and fungible and low risk. So traditionally, the most liquid, fungible, low risk financial asset is just the dollar, the local currency, maybe the euro, maybe the dollar. And, and so that's the, that's the obvious thing to do. I'm, I, I collected uh, $100 million this month. I put it in the bank. 
Now the problem with that is that the dollar doesn't generate a yield. And the dollar is, is a depreciating, uh, debasing financial asset. So in a world where the dollar gets inflated 7% a year, if the money supply of U.S. currency increases 7% a year, and it has over the past 100 years, then a billion dollars in cash is going to cost you 70 million a year in purchasing power. And of course, at 7% a year, over the course of 10 years, you'll cut your asset value in half. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that uh, a treasury strategy based just on currency isn't awesome. Um, it's dilutive. Um, the question here is, what's the next best thing? Well, the next best thing is sovereign debt. Um, sovereign debt is, is debt issued by a government. Uh, so you've got the most creditworthy counterparty, maybe the United States government. You don't really think they're going to default. And that's the advantage of sovereign debt. You might take on duration risk. If you buy long-term bonds when the interest rates are low and interest rates go up, then the bond will trade down and you could get wiped out that way. That happened to a bunch of banks about a year ago, Silicon Valley Bank and the like. They bought long-dated credit instruments and interest rates jumped from zero to 500 basis points. Um, and then the, and the, the debt traded down 10% or 15% or 20%. And when that happens, you're insolvent technically. So there is duration risk. But, it, you know, if you buy three-month T-bills yielding more than 500 basis points, then now you've got some yield. You're not concerned about the credit default risk. You're not really concerned about the duration risk. Uh, and so what's the benefit? Well, 500 basis points is better than zero basis points. And uh, on the other hand, what's the problem? The problem is it's taxable. So it's 500 basis points taxable. It might only be 300 or 350 basis points after tax. So let's say you get to 350 basis points after tax or 3.5% interest. Now the question is, what's the real cost of capital? Well, the risk-free cost of capital for an operating company is set by the central bank that controls the currency that it does business in. So if all of your revenues and all of your cash flows are in the dollar, and if the supply of dollars increases by 7% a year, the risk-free interest rate or the risk-free cost of capital, the hurdle you've got to get to is 7%. And um, in this particular case, generating 3.5% uh, interest against a 7% cost of capital means that you're burning 350 basis points every year. So that's not, uh, it's not ideal, it's dilutive. And um, of course, companies are, are actually expected to generate not the risk-free cost of capital, they're expected to, to generate the cost of capital plus a risk premium. So if you're investing in Apple or in any company, Apple's not the best example because Apple is a digital monopoly and everybody knows Apple's going to dominate. But if you just took the middle company in the S&P index, number 250, and you would say, is there risk to that business? Sure, there's risk to that business, right? The Chinese might embargo this, the, the product. There might be tariff. There might be strikes. Right now, there are strikes with all the auto companies. 
there might be an embargo or a trade war between you know one region and another. It might be the European Union might designate you as a monopoly and put a and put some fine on you or put some tax on you. Uh, so no matter what company, there's risk, competitive risk, embargo risk, war risk, tax risk, labor risk, etc. And for that reason, normally what you want is not seven percent, the risk-free rate. You want an extra four, five, six percent. I mean, probably the right number is 14% is where you have to get to, but uh, but just to, generally everybody would say at least a five, four to 5% risk premium, so 12%. So the investors are looking for you to generate 12% return. You're getting 0% on your cash. You're getting 3.5% after tax on your sovereign debt. So what what really happens with operating companies? Well... Generally, most CFOs and CEOs that are sophisticated, they look at this and they realize that if I generate $100 billion of cash flow and if I hold it in my treasury in sovereign debt, then I'm generating 3.5% after-tax yield instead of 12% after-tax yield. And that means that I am short 8, 8.5%, and so I'm underperforming by call it eight and a half billion dollars a year. This is a problem for the shareholders. The shareholders are going to say if if Apple Computer accumulated a hundred billion dollars of sovereign debt yielding five hundred basis points, the shareholders would start to say, "Well, yet this is dilutive, and uh, and you're actually missing out on an opportunity. You're not generating." 12 to 14 percent returns you're generating three to four percent returns for me give me the money back i can do better okay and so the result is an operating company strategy or treasury strategy is normally this you either dividend out the cash flow you pay a dividend apple pays a dividend or you buy your stock back you do a buyback apple does a buyback or you do acquisitions and you take the cash and you acquire another company. Disney, for example, is famous for doing acquisitions. They bought Pixar, they bought Marvel, they bought Lucasfilms, right? And that was considered to be reasonable, even though they paid a lot for those, for those assets. Facebook did some acquisitions. Oracle does lots of acquisitions. They've been doing acquisitions for 20 years. So... Conventional wisdom for operating companies is take your cash and do acquisitions, issue dividends, or do stock share buybacks. And of the three, the preference is generally either share buybacks, invest in yourself, or acquisitions. Go, go buy some other asset which is undervalued. Like Microsoft right now is doing this big Activision acquisition, a very big one. And why do they do those things? It's because the monetary policy of the central bank forces them to get rid of their cash. If, if the monetary inflation rate was zero, if there was no monetary inflation rate in the euro or the dollar, then you could simply put your money into cash and it would get more valuable over time. You could probably sweep your money into debt instruments and it would get more valuable over time. 
And so this hurdle rate wouldn't be 7%. The hurdle rate would be 0%. And it would change your view of saving toward invest versus investing. But we live in a world where there's always systemic and endemic inflation. And in, uh, in the weaker nations, it'll be 14% monetary inflation. In the stronger currencies, it'll be 7%. And when you tap, uh, when you uh, tack on top of that the risk premium, that means that um, a stock value, an equity share, cannot hold its value unless you can grow the cash flows per share faster than that inflation rate, right? If you wanna, if you wanna avoid losing value, you better grow EPS earnings per share faster than seven percent. And if you want to actually accrete value, you better grow it double that or triple that. And um, how many companies can do that organically? Uh, somewhere in the name neighborhood of one or two percent, right? So a very small number. Out of the S&P 500, you'll only find a handful that can grow faster than that inflation rate organically. And so how do you grow your EPS fast if you're not getting organic growth and the answer is you either get rid of the shares right reduce the denominator from 100 million shares of stock to 50 million shares of stock that'll double your EPS or you buy another company with cash or with debt and especially with cash and that's accretive because you didn't issue any more shares but you got more earnings right now um Oftentimes, this is coupled with one other strategy. In addition to dividends, buybacks, and acquisitions, and sweeping my cash flows into those three things, the other thing that an operating company does in treasury management is it borrows money. So you're going to issue bonds. You're going to issue corporate debt. You'll issue junk bonds, or you'll issue some other form of corporate debt, or you'll, do, you'll get a term loan from a bank, an asset-backed financing. Or you'll do an LBO, right? A leverage buyout. And so companies like Apple, they pair their dividends and their buybacks with corporate borrowing. You know, and an Oracle would do the same thing. And other companies would do the same thing. So what happens if I'm holding $10 billion in, in uh, treasury assets, $1 billion in cash, $9 billion in sovereign debt, but I have a hundred billion in corporate debt that I've issued. See, at that point, you have negative treasury, a negative treasury uh, or negative working capital in a way. Uh, that is, instead of having ten, uh, instead of having a hundred billion dollars of capital, you actually have minus ninety billion dollars of capital. You borrowed a hundred billion. You're holding ten billion that you're using and uh, you're minus 90 billion in capital. So instead of having a positive endowment, you have a negative endowment. And the logic of having a negative endowment is, since um, $100 billion of, of assets invested in sovereign debt would be, have a negative real yield of minus four to 10% a year then if I borrow $100 billion, it has a positive real yield of plus 4 to 10% a year. So by being the borrower, I'm actually getting cheap capital. Uh, 
if my stock is uh, is, is uh, appreciating at a rate of 14% a year, then I might as well borrow $100 billion and pay 4% interest and then buy back $100 billion worth of my stock, which is 14% yield, and then I'm scraping 10% yield off of that, right? I mean, the 14 versus the 4. And um, I found a way to actually accrete $10 billion of value a year to my shareholders by taking on leverage. So, so the status quo for operating companies is I don't want an endowment. I want a negative endowment, right? I don't want to, I don't want to retain capital. I want to, I want to distribute capital. If I can't reinvest it, I have to give it, I have to decapitalize and give it back. The consequence of this is a bunch of highly indebted operating companies everywhere in the world. Even why would a company like Apple, which is the healthiest company in the world, why does it have so much debt? Why would you indebt a healthy company? Because if they don't, in, if they don't take on the debt, it's dilutive to the shares. It's bad for the equity. Well, why is it that you have to actually decapitalize the company and take on negative capital or take on huge amounts of debt in order to avoid tanking your stock. And that's because of the monetary policy of the currency. So uh, when the more inflationary the environment, the more important it is to be indebted. If you were in an environment like Argentina where you had hyperinflation, the only way you stay wealthy is to take on a huge loan in pesos when the peso is 20 to the dollar. And when the peso ends up 800 to the dollar, right, you pay back the loan in, in massively devalued pesos, right? So you get rich by getting in debt. So most companies are pretty intelligent. The CFOs are intelligent and they figure this out. But what's the problem? The problem is... A, they decapitalize by giving all the money back so they don't have any capital. So if they run into a crisis like uh, COVID uh, where the world shuts down, you know, the, the cruise lines got shut down for a year. The hotels got shut down for a year. When you run into a crisis, you don't have any capital. And so you, you're undercapitalized and you may go bankrupt. That's the first problem. The second problem is if you compound it with taking on debt, even if you don't run into a crisis, if, if you simply have a bad quarter where your cash flows are 20% less than they were the previous quarter, you're still making a ton of money, but you trip all your debt covenants and the debt comes due and you're insolvent. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, that's, that's another massive risk. You're putting a totally healthy company at risk by loading it up with a ton of debt so that you might destroy it even though you had your revenues could be off 2% from expectation and you could bankrupt the company. Marvel Comics, for example, was bankrupted because it carried too much debt, even though, you know, people still love the comics. And so, so that's the second problem. The third problem is you're encouraged to do all these dilutive acquisitions. And in my experience in 30 years in business or 30 years running a public company, all of my competitors were destroyed or failed because they did bad acquisitions. The number one reason for a software companies to fail is they did bad acquisitions. They bought companies for too much that weren't worth that much because they were desperate 
to buy something to support their own stock. And so, you know, if I tell you, you know, go out and buy something expensive by the end of the day, you've got till five o'clock and otherwise you lose all the money. You know, you're, you know, you're running around and you walk into a Persian rug shop and you, and you try to buy the Persian rug and the guy wants $80,000 for it. You know, it's worth $4,000. And if you can wait for three days, you'll get it for 4000 but you're bidding against yourself in a hurry. So you pay 42000 for it. And you tell yourself it was a good deal because you were going to lose the 42000 anyway. So, so the existing uh, rules, they force everyone to make irrational decisions, take on debt they shouldn't take on, buy companies they shouldn't buy, uh, issue dividends they shouldn't issue, and buy back shares they shouldn't buy back. And uh, the, significance, the significance of Bitcoin is... Uh, is in two ways. Uh, first of all, CFOs and CEOs starting in 2024 will now have the option to buy Bitcoin instead of buying treasury bonds. So now you can buy a commodity that's liquid and fungible on your balance sheet. And, and that commodity is a scarcity. And because it's a scarcity, that means you can expect it to accrete in value more than 7%, probably 14% a year over the long term, even after, I think after we've gotten through the bull run and after the early adoption boost, which will cause Bitcoin to appreciate at rates faster than 14%, in the long term, over the course of 100 years, starting a decade or two decades from now, you could expect it to appreciate at 14% a year if the money supply or the currency supply is appreciating at 7% a year. Or, or expanding at 7% a year. So you've got an asset which will appreciate in price versus fiat. And of course, bonds don't, right? Bonds never appreciate in price for the most part against fiat. You're, you're buying them at par in, in order to get the taxable yield. So that's, that's a big deal, right? It's not comparable to buying a portfolio of soybeans or silver, or gold, or oil, or natural gas, because those are true commodities. And the problem with commodities, and Bitcoin doesn't have this problem. This is why people have to, have to we should really call it a scarcity rather than a commodity. The problem with commodities is there's a dysfunctional, systemic, endemic inflation built into the system. Um, not only... Is, uh, is it possible for someone to create more oil? It is a certain thing that when the price of oil triples, they will create a lot more oil, and no one is concerned about keeping the supply of oil in check over the long term. There's this dysfunctional competition. Um, you can try to create a cartel like OPEC, but uh, people that aren't in the OPEC, like the frackers in Texas, they're not in OPEC and they're going to frack oil and they're going to bust that cartel. And, and all of these commodities find their cartels broken and the gold miners want to produce more gold, the silver people want to produce more silver, soybeans want to produce more soybeans. So commodities aren't scarce. And, and I want to distinguish between that kind of... Um, ungoverned inflation or dysfunctional inflation versus the governed inflation of equities. You know, Apple Computer uh, or any, any company in the S&P 500 can also issue more stock. And if 
if you buy infinite amounts of the S&P index, you'll get a lot more stocks. They will issue more stocks during, you know, during the height of the market boom in uh, 2021, when you had GameStop and you had all the meme stocks, you saw all these people printing a lot of equity and selling it to the market. And that's, uh, and that's the danger of those assets. But at the end of the day, Tim Cook doesn't want to print infinite Apple stock. I mean, Tim Cook understands and his board of directors understand that if they want to maintain the credibility of the corporation, they have to maintain some control over the amount of shares they issue. And the same is true at Microsoft and the same is true at Google. They may print more equity, but it won't be ungoverned and dysfunctional. But imagine there were a hundred companies called Apple and they could all print Apple stock and people want Apple stock. So maybe Tim Cook wouldn't, but the Apple competitor number four in Timbuktu, they could and they could sell Apple stock. Well, in that case, they're all going to print as much as they can to drive the price down because they're ungoverned. And, and in fact, they have an incentive to sell the stock. And so that's what it's like in the commodities business. Somebody somewhere has an incentive to drive the price of that commodity down and they will sell as much as they can get their hands on. And so that being the case, there's never been a commodity like Bitcoin that was scarce. The closest thing uh, to uh, something like Bitcoin would be um, acreage in Palm Beach or acreage in Miami Beach. Not, not the square footage, but rather the underlying dirt. Because there's only so many linear feet of beachfront property in Palm Beach for the last 100 years, and no amount of money printing, and no amount of capital, and no amount of technology, and no amount of manufacturing know-how creates more beachfront property in Palm Beach. So when you look at that scarce, desirable property that you can't create more of, you can see that actually does go up in value. That's gone up by a factor of 1,000 in the last 100 years, 1,000x. And that appreciates at the rate that the money expands. But the problem is it's not a treasury asset. I can't buy and sell square feet of Palm Beach every day in the market. I can't liquidate it on demand. So the kind of property that I would want to hold, I can't hold as the CFO of a publicly traded company. The kind of stuff I can hold, sovereign debt, it isn't scarce. And it's a currency derivative. And so Bitcoin is this new thing. It is a digital scarcity that's liquid, that's fungible, that gets commodity treatment, that I can hold on a balance sheet as a treasury asset and while the currency is not generating a yield and the bonds aren't trading up in asset value and they're generating taxable yield and with a negative real yield, Bitcoin will appreciate in price tax deferred. And so what you've got is, the, is you have the opportunity of your Apple computer to buy $100 billion worth of an asset which will appreciate 15 to 20% a year with no tax load. So you're picking up a 20%, a $20 billion shareholder gain as an investment income, right, with a very favorable tax treatment. And 
what's the second best idea? Well, the, I mean, the second best idea is I allocate 10% of my treasury to the S&P index. And I don't get the 14% gain. I get a 7% gain. And I can't ever have more than a small amount because otherwise I'll trip those SEC covenants. But that second best idea isn't all that compelling because the institutional investor looks at that and says, you could have just given me the money and I could have put it in the S&P index. You know, so you're not really doing anything I can't do. And, uh, and you're not really getting that much of a yield. You're not using any strategic advantage that you have uh, in order to generate uh, something in excess of the S&P return. So fair value accounting opened the door for Bitcoin to serve as a treasury asset for an operating company. And the first order action of that would be I'm a CFO and I start to allocate some of my capital from treasury assets to Bitcoin. Maybe instead of 90% treasuries, 10% cash, I go 10% Bitcoin, 80% treasury, 10% cash. And then, of course, maybe then 20% Bitcoin, 70% treasuries, etc. So we start to see a creeping up of allocation from treasuries uh, to, uh, to Bitcoin. But the second order effect, which is a much more profound effect, is to basically turn the entire theory of treasury management on its head. Instead of dispersing all my cash flows to my investors via buybacks, instead of buying my, my stock back, I buy Bitcoin. Instead of doing acquisitions of other operating companies, I do an acquisition of Bitcoin. Instead of dividending out my cash flows, which generates a taxable event for my investors, I actually buy Bitcoin, which is tax deferred asset appreciation for my investors. And I'm doing something for them which is beneficial to them because they can't necessarily do that themselves. Right. And so that's a benefit to them. And I'm strengthening my core business because I'm putting a strong capital foundation underneath it. So instead of people worrying that I might get liquidated or I might uh, I might trip a debt covenant, I'm now deemed to be an extremely well capitalized company with a longer uh, a longer duration, longer time horizon. And I can invest the earnings from that balance sheet back into the core business or I can use them for strategic acquisitions in the future or the like. So I think, uh, I think we're at a, uh, a very important inflection point where it was for 50 years, since 1971, we've been in an inflationary environment. And so from 1971 to 2024, your treasury strategy is to decapitalize, generate a negative, a negative uh, treasury, right? Negative capital in order to debt finance and then just do buybacks and acquisitions. And that was a, it's an environment that creates fragile companies that are highly likely to fail 
doing bad deals, right, uh, with a short life expectancy. And uh, do we see that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, every single competitor of MicroStrategy went out of business in 20 years. Everyone out of 100, 100 public companies, every one of them failed except for us because of their treasury strategy. And if you look at the, uh, the life expectancy of public, publicly traded companies and most corporations, it's been very short. And it's been very short because they don't have the ability to accumulate an endowment. And if you consider, if you compare them to the uh, life expectancies or the duration of universities like Harvard or Yale or Stanford or of other institutions, those other institutions have lived a long time because they have endowments. So Har Harvard, if you wanted to run Harvard like you run an operating company, here's what you would do. You would say, you have to basically disperse all of your endowment back to the graduates and then you have to borrow a hundred billion dollars and pay four percent interest and then you have to grow your student base by 20 percent a year every year <laughs> and you have to raise the prices by 15 percent a year every year so imagine harvard you know growing their student population by 15 to 20 percent a year raising their prices perennially borrowing as much money as they could but no endowment and then would they still be here? No. Yeah, absolutely not. So when you put it like that, it's pretty obvious why corporations struggle. And it isn't good for society. It's, it's bad for the civilization because destroying one company after the other means you're putting all these people out of work. You're destroying capital. You're, de you're idling headquarters. You're idling factories. Right? How did we hollow out all the manufacturing in the United States? We destroy the manufacturers. We destroy the jobs. You know, it's bad for labor. It's bad for the country. It's bad for everywhere. The only people that benefit are the financial engineers, right? That that know how to take advantage of this are the politicians. But um, in 2024, there's a new regime. It's now possible for corporations to create endowments that are compliant with uh, corporate law and, and uh, rules of an operating company. And that can create a positive cycle. The more capital you keep, the more assets you have, um, the higher your investment returns, the, the larger your balance sheet, the more stable the company, the, the more you can invest, the better your product get, the better services you get, etc. MicroStrategy, for example, is a is a little example in a microcosm of that. We had a, um, a $666 million enterprise value 36 months ago. And we had $500 million in cash that was generating 0% interest, a liability. And, um, and then we had maybe a stock that had about a $1.2 billion market cap. So the company was valued, and we had maybe revenues of $500 million. We're kind of valued at one times revenue or, or, or the enterprise value plus the cash. And um, we could expect to get nothing from our treasury. And if there's inflation of 40%, then that means the $500 million would be worth $300 million in short order. So we're just looking at destroying our treasury's value 
and getting no lift from the operating business. So what we did was we inverted the company and we first invested half of the treasury in Bitcoin. Then we invested the rest of the treasury in Bitcoin after a Dutch auction. And then we, uh, then we took on $2.2 billion of debt in three different transactions, borrowing money at 1.5% interest and bought Bitcoin. And then we issued a, about the same amount or not quite that much, but billion to $2 billion in equity. And we bought Bitcoin. And so today, the enterprise value of the company is 10x, more than 10x. It's seven to eight billion dollars instead of 600 million. And the equity value of the company is 4x. And the stock has outperformed Bitcoin and outperformed the S&P. So we made a lot of money for our shareholders. We outstripped all our competitors in big tech, all of our competitors in enterprise software. And we have more than $4 billion of Bitcoin on the balance sheet. So if, if Bitcoin hits that long-term uh, appreciation of, say, 15%, then that means the company generates $600 million a year of investment income, which is more than the revenue of the company before we started this exercise. And that compounds tax-free, right? Tax-deferred. So... You're looking at at uh, 600 million, then 700 million, then 800 million, then a billion, then one billion, too. You see, so you've actually got a sustainable strategy to ride the wave of inflation while strengthening the endowment or the capital structure of the company, while supporting the operating mission of the company, which is again not unlike a Harvard University or, or any other Ivy League school with a properly managed endowment. Maybe a bit better because Bitcoin is a much better asset than those endowments have right now. But you can see there a model for a different treasury strategy. I, I would say you could, uh, I'll boil this down and summarize, which is, the law of the land and regulations uh, is, uh, is uh, detrimental to operating companies. Operating companies are not allowed to have an endowment or a balance sheet. They are discouraged from having positive capital. They're encouraged to run the business on negative capital, uh, liabilities, not assets. Endowments, nonprofits, Religious organizations, churches, and uh, institutions are able to run on uh, positive capital. So those entities are beneficiaries of monetary inflation to the extent that they invest in scarce desirable assets. And then operating companies are just like workers, laborers, Right? They are discriminated against. They are, they are the victims of monetary inflation. Um, high monetary inflation is a road to serfdom for the worker. And it's a road to serfdom for the operating company. And the reason that we have uh, capital markets that are tending toward monopolies and the big just keep getting bigger, right? Big tech, big pharma, big banking big utilities, big government, big entertainment. The reason they keep getting bigger is the monetary policy 
destroys anybody's ability to accumulate capital or lever the capital. And everyone is encouraged to engage in irrational, short-sighted behavior, right? Uh, you've got a nice company. Here's my, here's my advice for you. Um, give away all your profit. Go buy companies that aren't as good as yours as fast as you can and overpay for them. And borrow as much money as you can at whatever interest rate you have to pay. And if and uh, and then keep buying back the stock of the company with the cash flow, so that you have no cash, you have only liabilities, and you're in a hurry, and you have to buy another bad company, and then buy a company twice as big as that that's even worse, and keep buying bad companies that are in trouble at a at too high a price until eventually you blow up, right? That, that's conventional treasury strategy. And you might say, well, if that's true, if it's that irrational, then shouldn't I expect to see the majority of companies failing and going out of business? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. and yeah, it is. Well, look at them. <laughs> they are. If you actually study 100,000 companies created in the past 30 years and ask how many are still here and how did they fail, you'll find they all sold out. They all, they, uh, they, many of them did a succession of acquisitions and then failed, or they all sold out, or they were rendered insolvent, or they couldn't pay back their debt, and eventually they threw in the towel. And then who wins? The digital monopolies win, right? John D. Rockefeller rolled up all the other oil companies, and uh, you know the big tech companies will just roll up every other smaller company. And in the meantime, investors will do these LBOs, to try to squeeze something out of the companies in the interim. Today's video is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Use promo code BitcoinLayer to pick up your passport today. Now go check out this device. The passport is a great way to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. We all know the risks out there with keeping your coins on a third party custodian. Get them into your own custody today with a passport and use Bitcoin layer as your promo code for $10 off. We talked, we got into this conversation, uh, honestly, quite honestly, thinking that we were going to compare Bitcoin to treasury securities and maybe the risks of each in the investment properties. But instead, the direction that you're going here, it's much more societal in nature. What you're actually saying is that the endemic and systemic inflation completely distorts the operating company's motives from being uh, an entity that can create an endowment and accumulate capital over a long time to an entity that is forced to get rid of the cash as fast as it can and engaging in mergers and acquisitions in which um, actually just creates these large monopolies. And so we're, we're talking about something much more societal in nature than just comparing the risks of two different asset classes. So talk a little bit more about just societally what you see. Is it this accounting, new fair value accounting rule that is going to unleash some maybe behavioral changes in the society? Or is it already underway because we have Bitcoin? Talk to us about that. Well, you know, we use the phrase Bitcoin fixes this. 
right? Bitcoin is sound money, and and Bitcoin is thermodynamically sound financial asset, and a thermodynamically sound um, strategy. So people haven't had a thermodynamically sound saving strategy up until now, right? The, the closest thing to sound money in the current world before Bitcoin is, uh, is scarce desirable real estate. That's the closest thing. And, uh, and most, wealthy, uh, most wealthy families, most wealthy investors I run into, <coughs> they, um, <coughs> they own real estate. And they own real estate in London and Paris and New York and L.A. and, and middle of Miami, places that people want to be. And the strategy for accumulating wealth is levered long property, right? If you really want to get rich, if you want to get rich, then you have to borrow a lot of money, buy something highly desirable, hold it for a long period of time, wait for the monetary inflation to drive up the value of it, right? You bought a billion dollars worth of real estate in London. You paid 3% interest. It traded up 7 or 8% a year. And you're generating 4% yield on a billion dollars every year for 10 years. And all of a sudden, you've just made yourself hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So that has been uh, the only strategy. I think... Um, Bitcoin is is now emerging as something superior to that. Bitcoin allows you to take on uh, a strategy of acquiring scarce desirable property, but now you can acquire it in in um, units of twenty dollars at a time or two hundred dollars at a time, and so it's a, it's an egalitarian strategy uh, for wealth creation or wealth preservation. The, the, the big catalyst here, I mean, the first one was, you know, Satoshi's creation of Bitcoin, right? Put a big star on the, on the map nearly 15 years ago, coming up in a few weeks, is the anniversary of the white paper. Um, the second big milestone was the end of the block size wars when... Uh, Bitcoin was established, you know, as this this um, censorship resistant network that's resistant to the meddling of corporate interests and others. And uh, and we sorted out what's the dominant chain and and a lot of a lot of theory and uh, a lot of values got cemented in the block size wars. Uh, I think the third milestone is is the entrance of uh, is actually COVID, COVID and the entrance of corporations. Right, COVID catalyzed corporations to look at Bitcoin. So without COVID, MicroStrategy doesn't do Bitcoin, and without MicroStrategy doing Bitcoin, probably the next set of companies don't do it. You don't get two dozen Bitcoin holders, and then you don't get the accountants interested, and then you don't get fair value accounting, and then you don't get the the clamor for the ETFs and the spot ETFs, so so that was the next milestone. Then after that, the uh, the spot ETF will be the next really big milestone because it'll be 
a high bandwidth institutional on-ramp for tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars of capital. And, um, and so that's really key. So, and then after that, um, the embrace of the traditional banking networks, right? The Deutsche Banks, the Santanders, other banks starting to custody Bitcoin um, and provide uh, banking services. So all of those things coming together, they actually uh, deliver uh, digital scarcity as a fungible liquid asset to all classes of investors. Now, if we consider them, uh, the retail investors will benefit. They, they've been engaged, but there'll be an order of magnitude increase in retail participation with spot ETFs because, because uh, just about every working person has a 401k that's wired through conventional Wall Street money managers. And so you'll start to see the flow of those kind of funds uh, in, enabled by the Fidelities and the Black Rocks of the world. And that'll, that will increase retail participation by an order of magnitude. I think institutional participation will, will also increase by orders of magnitude because of the spot ETF. They really can't, they can't engage in the current structure because all the institutional money managers have accounting systems, compliance system, control systems, risk management systems, um, that are all uh, trading systems and collateral systems that have all been built over 30 years. And in that system, they can punch a button and buy a million dollars of Apple stock or a million dollars of a gold ETF or a million dollars worth of the S&P index or a million dollars of bonds. And they can just do it instantly and everything is accounted for. And if they make money, they get compensated. And if they lose money, right, they they get uh, criticized and at the end of the year their taxes get paid that way and if they want to buy a hundred million dollars their bank like JP Morgan fronts them the money you know and, and so that entire system which is which is a combination of technical functionality and accounting functionality and risk management functionality and financing functionality all of that gets in, activated by the ETFs so they will be able to participate and we will start to see an evolution in portfolio thinking. It's pretty clear that the 60-40 portfolio is, is uh, a thing of the 20th century and people are starting to question it. And so now I think you'll start to see portfolio models that might vary if it, if it becomes – when – there's digital gold and people say, if you like gold, buy 50% real gold, 50% Bitcoin, <clears throat> right? Your portfolio models break and lots of capital flows into Bitcoin. When people say the 60-40 portfolio only made sense when there were only bonds and stocks, but now there's stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin. Now maybe it's 60-20-20 or it starts to be 50-30-20 or something. And so those models start to change and the asset allocations will change with them. And, uh, and, and that'll have an impact. And then, of course, for, um, for operating companies, we just talked about it a lot. Now it's possible to be a treasury asset. And that means that maybe 
maybe instead of operating companies remitting 95% of their cash flows back to their investors, what if they actually kept half their cash flows, right? So you might see a huge amount of capital move from institutional investors and endowments back to the operating companies, right? There's no reason why Apple might at some point end up with hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of assets on its balance sheet instead of no net assets on its balance sheet. There'll be lots of interesting debates over it, but the point is now it's not even possible, and in the future it will be possible. Um, I think that, uh, that Bitcoin will creep into sovereign balance sheets, both sovereign wealth funds as well as sovereign nations. It'll start with the smaller ones that are more innovative as a small percentage, and over time it will grow. It's, it's not going to replace the currency that's used as currency or the sovereign debt used as the lowest risk asset. It's going to replace real estate and equity and property and all the other things that people buy. It's like, you know, if, if you're the sovereign wealth front of Norway and you're comfortable holding $100 billion of S&P equities, you know, you could allocate half of that to Bitcoin instead. And you might very well convince yourself that that's diversification and that's less risky. So Bitcoin does serve, it serves this, uh, this new emerging role, right, which is as a diversifier. And I think that at this point, it's probably worthwhile for us to come back to how does Bitcoin compare to, to uh, sovereign debt as an investment asset. And if we think about that, um, sovereign debt is uh, low-risk money. It's a monetary investment. I'm, I've got $100 million in cash flow, and I have, to, I have to hold it somehow. So I've decided I'll invest $90 million of it in treasury bills with a duration from three months to 12 months. Low duration risk, low credit risk. I'm getting some yield. I'm holding it as a currency, a, a currency substitute of sort. What's the negative, the positive, um, and how do I compare it to Bitcoin? Well, I mean, Bitcoin is a non-sovereign store of value bearer asset that does not generate yield. Treasuries are a sovereign asset, sort of a bearer asset for the mo most people think of it that way, although it's not quite, but it, it has counterparty risk in, uh, in a couple of ways. It, uh, it has counterparty risk over the long term because there's inflation of the unit. It's currency derivative. It, it doesn't have counterparty risk if it's the reserve currency of the world, but every other piece of sovereign debt has counterparty risk because Argentine debt instruments get defaulted on. Nigeria might default on their debt. So most nations other than, than um, the United States could default on their debt. And they could do a soft default. Or they, or they always have this option of a, a subtle default, which is I'm just going to print twice as much of this stuff and I'll pay you off in the currency unit, but I'll devalue the currency unit. So, so I'll devalue my currency to pay you off 
and and maybe I'll devalue you in the near term or maybe I'll devalue you like if I basically issue a bunch of 10-year bonds in the euro the cut you know and in 10 years I told you that there's going to be 10 times as many euros in circulation well then you don't want to be holding the 30-year euro bonds <laughs> you might not be devalued in the next 12 months but you're getting devalued in 10 to 20 years and so the 30-year euro bonds are going to mature worthless right so so sovereign debt has a lot of that kind of duration counterparty risk um and with with every company country every every kind of sovereign debt has duration counterparty risk because they can change their monetary policy and then all of the weaker countries the second third tier countries have credit risk as counterparty risk and even if you have um even if you have, you know, no duration, if you have 90-day uh, sovereign debt from the United States, you still have sanction counterparty risk. If you're on the wrong side of the nation in a war, then you're going to find yourself sanctioned and those, those uh, instruments are going to be canceled. So they are securities. They're securities issued by uh, a government, right, a nation state and... They're senior to, of course, a whole class of other credit securities like the municipal bonds that are issued by cities like New York or states or, um, or of course, corporate bonds and other kinds of bonds. Um, Bitcoin uh, is, is advantaged to those sovereign securities in a variety of ways. One is there's no counterparty, so there's so you don't have a council that sets monetary policy. That's a big advantage. The second is there's no nation state behind it, so that's a that's a big advantage. The third is it it, it is a asset you can self custody. It really isn't practical for a corporation to custody a billion dollars worth of uh, government bonds. It's very you know you're gonna have to put it in a bank. And the issue is, you may if you have government bonds in a bank in in the middle of Africa, then maybe the bank in Africa seizes your bonds, even though they're U.S. bonds. So, how do you how do you actually move your money? If you actually make a billion dollars in a country that's not the U.S., you convert your money into bonds, take a ten percent haircut, then you take a thirty percent haircut to get the bonds out of the country. Then when they're in the next country, you've got 60 cents on the dollar left, and now you've just got the counterparty risk to the United States in duration, right? Um, and so all of these are challenges you can't really manage with sovereign debt. With Bitcoin, by looking at the advantages, in addition to the fact that no one can manipulate the monetary policy and you don't have a sovereign that you're facing or any kind of government agency that you're facing, the other advantage is you've got a better tax treatment, which is at the end of the day, you would much rather have something that appreciates 5% a year tax deferred than something that pays you 5% yield that's taxable. And of course, Bitcoin... Is going to appreciate more like 15% a year, you know, in the conservative case. So if I had a choice of 15% no tax asset appreciation, which then compounds, 
Would you rather have compounding 15% tax-deferred appreciation or non-compounding after-tax taxable 5% yield? Right, it's pretty obvious which one you'd like. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about taxes. So to the extent that you're able to own an asset and not generate a yield and never have to sell it, right? Then you've you've got maximum tax advantage versus what you might find as excise taxes, you know, income taxes, capital gains taxes and the like, and they can be layered across all the jurisdictions. So when I look at Bitcoin like that, um clearly the tax treatment's another big advantage. And then finally uh, a huge advantage, and there's two more advantages. One is duration. Bitcoin is the longest duration financial asset you could own. I mean, you've probably heard of like the 50-year UK gilts, right? A 50-year bond, a 40-year bond. But what about a thousand-year instrument? Like, what if I could hold it forever for 100 years or 1,000 years? So Bitcoin is constructed so that you can hold it longer than the duration of a company, no, Apple's never going to issue a 100-year bond, right? And, and of course, uh, a small competitor to Walmart is not going to issue a 50-year bond. No one would want to hold it for 50 years. The company might not be there. So the useful life or the life expectancy of companies is short. The life expectancy of, of uh, developing world debt is also short. Within 20 to 30 years, every developing world country will default on its debt. So you can't really hold a 50-year or 30-year developing world bond. You know, I, people have been reluctant to hold anything longer than a 30-year U.S. bond. And if you look at, um, if you look at uh, the life of a currency... You know, the Mexican currency hasn't lasted 50 years. No Argentine currency has lasted 50 years. I mean, world currencies last 100 years max. So uh, the Russian currency failed 25 years ago completely. So the world's full of examples of currencies that don't last 50 years, for sure. And uh, so Bitcoin is um, a longer duration asset than any kind of bond, and it's even a longer duration asset than that uh, Palm Beach real estate. If you actually go to Palm Beach, what you'll find is actually the beach in Palm Beach is eroding away. Like there is 10 feet of beach between the breakers, you know, and, uh, and the water. And so you can't even be guaranteed the beach will be there. Not for a thousand years, maybe not for a hundred years. And so... You wouldn't really want to make a thousand-year investment in a building or in a piece of land. How long will you live in a given nation, right? Can you pick it up and carry it with you? So Bitcoin, it, it's, uh, it has this big set of tax advantages. I mean, the last tax advantage, by the way, I didn't note is property tax advantage. You can put a property tax on a building or on an acre, and you can't move the building and you can't move the acre. But if you put a property tax on Bitcoin, you can move the Bitcoin to Singapore. You could take it with you to Monaco. You could set up a company in Bermuda. You could move your family to El Salvador. 
So the likelihood that you can actually um, find a jurisdiction with a better tax treatment is much higher. Um, you know, when, at the end of the day, it's possible for a nation, uh, the United States could put a tax on the bond and say, we're going to tax you 2% of the value of all the bonds you own. If they're U.S. Treasury bonds, then that'll follow you everywhere on Earth. But it's not so likely that the United States is going to actually put a tax on property that's not in the United States, that's not issued by the U.S., right? Much, much less likely that you'll ever see that. I mean, they could, in theory, put a property tax on U.S. citizens living outside the U.S., but, but at some point, you know, 10 years after you renounce your citizenship, your children can probably actually hold some property that is not subject to any particular nation state. So I would say Bitcoin has a big tax advantage versus sovereign debt. It has a big duration advantage versus sovereign debt and versus any other asset. It, um, it has universal worldwide appeal. It has much greater scarcity. It's not a currency derivative. And, uh, and if you want to actually hedge against inflation, you have to buy something which is not valued based on the cash flows it generates. What is valued based on cash flows? Well, um, currency is 100% currency derivative. A bond is called substantially a currency derivative, 90% to 100% currency derivative, depending upon how you view it. Uh, a value stock is... 70% a currency derivative. A technology stock is a quarter to 50% a currency derivative. A piece of real estate, commercial real estate that generates rents is half a currency derivative. If the rents are capped at CPI, it's even more a currency derivative. Right? What's not a currency derivative? It's like if you own some scarce, desirable piece of art that people want to pay you for just for the joy of owning it. If, if you have um, a piece of residential luxury property that people simply want to own to live in, right? If you have a trophy asset, if you're the only person owning the baseball that Babe Ruth hit out of the park to break the record, maybe, but it needs to be a trophy that is unrelated to the cash flows it generates and it needs to be mobile because if you have the trophy asset, if you have the best piece of property in the Weimar Republic, when the currency collapses, the property is not going to be worth much. And even if the economy recovers, you know, what's the, prop the best house in Berlin during World War II worth when the Allies firebombed the entire city? So... Ultimately, if it's not portable and it's not scarce, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a hedge against currency debasement. And so, the entire world is looking for diversification against currency debasement, especially internationally, right? Especially if if you own a portfolio of stocks in Argentina or Turkey, what do you want more than some kind of hedge against? the debasement of that currency. So the world wants a currency hedge 
the gold, a bar of gold has been people's most popular idea, but it's not a very good idea because it gets cut, in, you know, the value of your gold gets cut in half every 35 years at best, so it's just too inflationary. How, how else do I actually uh, create an asset in an international regime with inflation that will hold its value? Let me, let me uh, twist it around a bit. If I said to you, pick a company in Argentina that you would like to invest in right now, knowing that there's inflation, hyperinflation, which one? Right? You have to pick a company that generates cash flows in dollars outside of Argentina. And then you also have to pick a company that, has, uh, that, that won't have its assets seized by the government. Right? Tricky. Your best bet, by the way, if you want to fix a company in an inflationary environment, would be the company adopts a Bitcoin strategy and it sweeps all its excess cash flows into Bitcoin. So if I show you a hotel in uh, Turkey and I tell you that they own uh, 10,000 Bitcoin, well, you know, the company's got a floor, right? If it's got no debt and 10,000 Bitcoin and then you say, well, how much do they make every year? And I say, well, right now they make about $50 million a year in profit in Lira and they sweep it into Bitcoin. Okay, well, so I can value the company based upon the balance sheet, 10,000 Bitcoin, plus the discounted value of the cash flows of the P&L. So I can estimate that, but let's say the worst thing that happens, which is the value of the cash flows goes to zero. You've got a floor on the value of the company. If, if the company's enterprise value is made up 50% of its balance sheet and 50% of its cash flows, then at least I know that uh, if I can buy it at a 40% discount to enterprise value, then I'm probably not going to lose much money. And the worst is it goes to that, it goes to the value of the balance sheet, assuming it doesn't get expropriated by the government, right? But if it's a multinational and it has operations in six different countries and it has, um, has uh, its Bitcoin custodied in Switzerland, right, then, then you think, well, may, maybe even things go bad in Africa and it's African. If it's a gold miner in Africa, but it has Bitcoin in Switzerland, right, and the Bitcoin is worth half of the company, then even if its operations in Africa get shut down, it's worth something, right? And so Bitcoin actually serves a useful ro uh, role. It's, in, it's a way to diversify um, your portfolio from that currency risk and from that operating risk. And you can do it if you're an investor, but you can also do it as a company. So a company itself can construct an equity which is diversified and hedged against the risks in its own uh, marketplace. And, uh, and it can build shareholder value in that way. And so, so this is a global asset and a global strategy. And uh, everybody in the world has local banking risk and local currency risk and local government risk. But up until Bitcoin, they didn't have an option to actually hedge that risk.
today you could actually hold the majority of your treasury assets outside of your local banking system outside of your local currency outside of your local country and you could still operate and I I gotta believe that that's beneficial in a lot of ways the obvious way is your company's more likely to last the second way is if you operate a business in let's just say a banana republic country randomly and it doesn't have a rule of law if um if the government wants to seize your mine or seize your bakery or seize your hotel, if all of your assets are in the local bank under the control of the government, you have no leverage, right? They just take all your money, lock up your bank, and take your factory, and you're bankrupt. But if you actually have most of your financial assets outside of that system, then they have a vested interest in negotiating with you because they probably like to keep you a well-endowed uh, a well-endowed corporation providing jobs and making investments in their country so you see a, a strong diversified multinational is going to get treated better than a local um, a, a local uh, undiversified manufacturer right this is the I mean this is the plight of uh, Jews in the 30s in Germany right where the Germans just seized all their money, took all their assets, took all their property because they didn't have a choice. But if, um, if you had a choice, if you had your money outside the country, then maybe you would say, maybe I'll give you half, let me leave, or i give you a quarter. Whereas what really happened in the day was it rapidly became, I give you 90% and then 95%, and then it was... I will give you everything I have and my cousin in America will give you a lot more to let me out. And so that's the plight of the expatriate, you know, under duress um, in the conventional system. And I think that, uh, that Bitcoin really is quite powerful idea because you can, you can build a company where you're protected from being abused by the local government or the local marketplace by uh, using Bitcoin as treasury asset. But you can also create a security and equity that has a lot more appeal to international investors because you're holding an international asset, right? So you're less risky to people that would invest in you and, uh, and you're respected more and treated better by those that would abuse you. And so there's really no downside. And of course, if you, if you generated $10 billion of cash flow over 10 years and you gave it all away, when the crisis comes, you've got nothing. Whereas if you generated the $10 billion in cash flows and put in Bitcoin, when the crisis comes, you'll have $50 billion in assets. You'll have, right? When the crisis comes, it'll be a non-crisis, right? Because, because in the latter situation, your option is just shut down the factory, leave, and have the $50 billion and be rich. Whereas the other, the other operating strategy is I gave away my riches to my investors and if this factory gets shut down, I have nothing. So one drives, it's, it's literally the road to serfdom, right? It drives you to desperation and eventually to death, corporate death. And the other is a path to life and vitality and prosperity. 
So, Michael, uh, what you talk about with regard to Bitcoin not being a currency derivative is the thesis that underpins layered money and the Bitcoin layer, which is that Bitcoin is its own layer of money. It does not derive from the balance sheet of any financial institution, and it doesn't have the risk of any counterparty. And that's the most important uh, property about Bitcoin is its independence from the financial system. The last question I have for you is about a couple of the topics you've talked about, one being the spot ETF in the United States uh, regulatory environment, and the other being this source of Bitcoin demand coming from around the world in countries without stable currency regimes, in countries that have seen frequent default of their sovereign debt. So maybe you can just answer for us, where is the Bitcoin adoption going to come from in the next five to 10 years? Is it both of these sources? Is it one before the other? And uh, what is your vision for Bitcoin adoption? Bitcoin adoption is going to come from uh, all channels. Uh, there are going to be um, on-ramps via crypto exchanges everywhere in the world. There are going to be on-ramps via peer-to-peer -peer trading. People are going to actually trade their goods and services for Bitcoin uh, to get in the ecosystem. There are going to be on-ramps from, uh, from operating companies that start to, start to heavily invest in Bitcoin. There's going to be on-ramps from uh, the spot ETF, and eventually there'll be on-ramps from conventional banks like Deutsche Bank and the like. They're all uh, different ways uh, that capital will flow into the Bitcoin network. Um, what'll be the biggest? The thing that's going to drive price most, that'll be uh, the first order driver of the value in the network will be the spot ETF first. Um, if, you, if you have the ability to buy Bitcoin right now via crypto exchange, you should count yourself lucky. You have, um, if you have the technical capability to buy it, and if you have uh, the knowledge to be confident in buying it, then you're going to be the winner because you get to buy it at 26,000 a coin instead of a million a coin, right? And so when, uh, when the institutions come, massive walls of capital come, and when they buy it, there's, there's going to be a massive short squeeze. There's, there's not enough to buy. The price is going to have to adjust up rapidly. And as the price adjusts up, then, um, then uh, the ability for the humble pleb to stack sats and to benefit, it'll be there, but it won't. Instead, you'll be stacking sats at 250000 a coin, not 25000 a coin, right? And if you're making $10 an hour at McDonald's, right, that's the same as, as making $100 an hour then, right? So, you know, you'll eventually look back and say, wow, I, you know, I'm paying 40 times as much. So if you're making $10 at McDonald's, that's the same as, as getting paid $4,000 or $400 an hour, right, at, at that time. So right now... Uh, right now is a very special period because we're at the tail end of the crypto period or the crypto era where everybody got Bitcoin primarily through crypto exchanges. And we're just at the cusp at the beginning of the Wall Street era where people, most people will get their Bitcoin exposure 
by buying an ETF from Fidelity or BlackRock or buying some other security. And um, eventually you'll see, uh, you'll see a, a banking error where people will just go to the, their bank, JP Morgan, and they'll buy the asset and there'll be treasury services for people that want to hold Bitcoin in kind. And then there'll be others that'll hold the spot ETF because they think that's a bit easier. And then there'll be, there'll always be the community of maximalists, you know, that are, are uh, self-custodying with their own seed phrase and hardware wallet and the like. And there will be, I think, an explosion in, uh, in options and diverse ways to acquire Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin. I can see at some point when all the banks have adopted it, maybe you acquire with your bank. Uh, I can see another point when Apple and Google and Microsoft will adopt it and maybe you'll buy it and hold it on your iPhone. I will see, I can see a world of a lot of special purpose, you know, Bitcoin seed phrase devices and signing devices and there'll be competition there and some people will do it that way. I can see a world where there will be uh, layers, right? If Bitcoin is a layer, then Bitcoin sitting in the Lightning Network is sort of a layer up if it's custodial. Uh, Bitcoin sitting in a spot ETF is another layer. Bitcoin sitting on the balance sheet of MicroStrategy when you own MicroStrategy stock is another layer. Uh, Bitcoin sitting custodially in, uh, in the iCloud may feel like a, another layer to people. And then Bitcoin insurance policies, or I can imagine Bitcoin funds and other ETFs that, imagine it's not an ETF which is pure Bitcoin. What if I actually take a short duration sovereign debt and I, and I mix it 50-50 with Bitcoin? So, in, you know, I end up with an instrument which is on one side it's generating 500 basis points of taxable income and low volatility versus the dollar. And on the other hand, it's generating 15% tax deferred appreciation. <laughs> and I create this, this instrument which doesn't have the appreciation of Bitcoin, but it doesn't have the volatility. So you could imagine all sorts of securities like that. I, I, I think of Bitcoin as it's like the sucralose of money. You know how you want to make anything sweet? You put a little bit of sucralose in it and it makes everything sweet, your coffee, your, your food, your drink, your everything. Well, if I, if I put a little bit of Bitcoin into my insurance policy, my Bitcoin insurance policy uh, has lower premiums and, and higher payout. And my Bitcoin-backed bonds, you know, they have a higher appreciation or... Maybe I, maybe I lace Bitcoin into the S&P index and I give you half S&P and half Bitcoin. And then maybe I give you all Bitcoin. But I think that there'll be lots of different Bitcoin assets that people might want to buy. And you could even imagine Bitcoin uh, getting built into different uh, nations' assets, right? Like if I want to, if, if I want... Uh, to issue bonds as El Salvador, I issue Bitcoin-backed bonds. Or maybe in Turkey, I start issuing some kind of sovereign bond, which is half-backed by Bitcoin and half-backed by something else. And, and, I, and I give you a tax advantage to buy it. Like if you buy this bond, it generates yield, but you don't have to pay ta income tax on it. 
Like that's how you, New York City municipal bonds work, where the municipal bonds give you a tax advantage of your New York City dweller. So I can, I can see Bitcoin getting securitized into lots of different assets. And ultimately, it will uh, it'll spread to billions and billions of people. And they'll use it lots of different ways. And um, it'll spread to thousands and thousands of companies. And they'll use it lots of different ways. And the early adopters will be the visionaries and, and the ones that, that have the greatest incentive. Like some people have a need. Hyperinflation is driving adoption, right? I mean, the reason that, that Bitcoin is popular in Turkey and popular in Argentina is because the alternative is not very appealing. If you convert all your money from local currency to dollars, put it in the local bank, and then the bank seizes your currency, converts it back to the local, converts your dollars back into the local currency and devalues it 10 to 1, then you're going to realize that simply buying dollars isn't a solution. So I think that um, adoption's being driven by a variety of things. I have a price model for Bitcoin. And my price model for Bitcoin is, is the price is driven by the monetary inflation in the fiat currency frame of reference. That's one part of it. You know, if the currency is hyperinflating at 100% a year, you're going to see uh, Bitcoin price in that currency going up faster than that or at that rate. So that's the first driver, inflation, but it's a vector depending on the currency. The second driver is, um, is um, in this case, uh, the uh, adoption of, of Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset by the people and the institutions in the marketplace. So the more people that adopt Bitcoin, as, when, when you're a hodler, you've adopted it as a treasury reserve asset. People say, well, that's not using it. Of course that's using it. In fact, the single most important use of money is to ad adopt it as your balance sheet. If everybody on earth adopted Bitcoin as their primary treasury asset, it would go to $10 million a coin overnight and then up, up from there. So adoption as a treasury asset is, uh, is second. And governments can do it. Institutions can do it. Endowments can do it. Religions can do it, families can do it, corporations can do it, right? I mean, every entity with a treasury could adopt Bitcoin as an asset. And there's a, there's a degree, right? Is it 1% adoption, 5%, 10%, 50%, 90%, 100%? Obviously, the more adoption, the more power. So that's the second driver. Uh, the third driver is technology or utility, Right. If, on the day that Apple says we built a Bitcoin signing device into the iOS phone or the or the iPhone, and now you can use your iPhone and your Apple Watch, you know, and your MacBook is a multi-sig setup, you know, or you can assign multi-sig between three members of your family with family sharing or something. When they do that and they make it instantaneous and easy, then you're going to see a big surge in adoption of Bitcoin, right? Technology drives adoption. And then you'll see a big surge in the price. Now, technology is not the only thing that drives adoption. What else drives adoption? Hyperinflation, right? fear, 
drives adoption. So hyperinflation is a marketing campaign for Bitcoin. Inflation is a marketing campaign for Bitcoin. Also regulation. When the regulators say that Bitcoin is a commodity, an asset without an issuer, that drives adoption. When they actually approve a spot ETF, that drives adoption. When FASB approves fair value accounting, that drives adoption. So regulatory clarity drives adoption. Awareness drives adoption. Education drive adoption. Technology, you know. It's more important that Apple adopt Bitcoin than it is that your mobile startup adopt Bitcoin, right? If Apple builds Bitcoin into the iPhone, that's more important than the fact that somebody that wants to launch the next WhatsApp built Bitcoin into their app. So, so the, the behaviors of Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Google, they're, all, they're just like nation states, really. Um, you know, if China, if China embraces, China says you can own Bitcoin, right? The more of embrace from China, the more embrace of the EU, the more embrace of the, of the US, the more adoption. So those are the three first order drivers, you know, adoption, technical utility, and inflation. And then the, the, the last, the second order driver is productivity growth of the people that have adopted it, right? In, in the extreme, and this takes you to the Austrian econom economics theory of sound money, if everybody uses our money, then the money, and if the economy grows its supply of goods and services by 2% a year, the money will get 2% more valuable each year, assuming the money supply is constant, right? So ultimately, it's, it's not just about adoption, but like imagine the company that adopts Bitcoin also doubles their cash flows the next year, you see, right? So the productivity of the Bitcoin community will ultimately drive Bitcoin after we get through the first order effects. But the first order effects of inflation and utility and, and adoption, you know, those things are going to dwarf every other factor. And all of these things are kind of a, a function of time, right? Right, one, one can say over time, Information will spread, adoption will spread, people will build this into technology, inflation is a function of time. So over time, you can say Bitcoin price is going up over time. The reason it's going up is because of utility, adoption, and inflation, and productivity, because they're all functions of time. And, you know, that that's my view on it. And as you can see, the real big question mark is, is what will each individual do? What will each family do? What will each institution do? What will each company do? What will every executive do? What will every nation state do? Everybody chooses how rapidly and how enthusiastically they adopt this asset class and they adopt this network and they adopt this protocol. Right. Bitcoin is it's uh, it's an asset, it's a network, it's protocol and it's an ideology. And it is defended by computer power, electrical power, economic power and political power. And right now it's growing at a very rapid rate. The computer power is 400, 420 hash rate. 
It would take all the computers in the world to attack it. Electrical power is 12.5 gigawatts. The economic power looks to be about $550 billion if I calculate the basis of Bitcoin investors. That's how much money has been invested. You can get to that back of the envelope estimate if you just take the four-year simple moving average and multiply by the outstanding supply, and that's a pretty good surrogate for, on average, what people have invested to buy their Bitcoin. And then the political power is 220 million people that own some of it, right? And I mean, that's Google's best estimate right now. I think it's growing by millions every month. I expect we'll be a billion sometime this decade. And of course, people, 220 million people with $550 billion invested don't want their money taken away. <laughs> and, th and that's what drives their political behavior. And that's what drives the network. So there we go. Michael, thank you so much for sharing with us your vision of Bitcoin and uh, some of the Bitcoin adoption metrics that you're watching. Uh, with Michael Saylor, I'm Nick Bhatia. Thank you for joining us once again at the Bitcoin layer. Uh, Michael, tell our audience where they can find you. Yeah, I, I post on uh, what used to be Twitter, what is now X, on a pretty frequent basis. You can follow me at my handle, Saylor, S-A-Y-L-O-R. So find me at Sailor uh, on, uh, on X, or you can uh, go to um, hope.com, and we've got a lot of useful Bitcoin education materials on hope. Think Bitcoin is hope. My personal website's michael.com, and uh, I've got an account on Instagram. I just I put cool photos, Michael underscore Sailor on Instagram if, if people are hanging out there. And uh, if you're really good and you're on Noster, you can find me on Noster, sailor at hope.com. All right. Noster. Thank you, Michael. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, my pleasure. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by River. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL for a Bitcoin only exchange and a great experience. River offers a DCA feature where you can stack sats without any fees. They offer Lightning Network withdrawals. So get your Bitcoin off of the exchange using Lightning Network instantly. And also the most important thing about River, guys, they do not use a third-party custodian. They have a multi-sig storage solution so that your Bitcoin, once you purchase your Bitcoin using River, is not stored using a third-party custodian. River has control of that Bitcoin using a multi-signature solution. And what's more, they suggest you get your Bitcoin off of the exchange and into your own pockets. So go check out River today.